When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I walk a straight line, shackled and chained. Welcome back to another edition of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. And we're going back to our roots, Woody Overton. Right, right back inside the wire. Back inside <laughs> the wire, just when you thought we got out. Yep, just, just coming back I in. I got out, they made me come back in. <laughs> That's right. So we look, um, we talk a lot on this show about... Uh, the advancement of especially DNA, something you've right. worked with in the past right. many times. Right. Yeah. And uh, this is a huge testament to DNA, right? And yeah. when I started, um, it, it was really coming in its own. Now it's so much more advanced. God. But I remember putting rushes on murder cases and it taking six months to get the results back. That's crazy. Even. Even back, you know, we talked about uh, Sean Vincent Gillis, yeah. and and that was really probably one of the first times they were ever able to really rush something to the point yeah. where it really helped because right. you had to get that serial killer right. off the street. Well, Dr. Derek Tidley, too. Yeah. Uh, but still, that even the rush back then took a long time. Right. Not, not like it is now. Right. But you know what? I'm totally for it. Uh, and let me do this real quick. I want to give a shout out to all our patrons. We love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. We love all you listeners and bloody 
you know, shooting to the top of the charts. And it's because y'all are listening, liking, and sharing. Please continue to do so. And we love y'all very much. Back to the DNA. Uh, it's just come leaps and bounds and continue to change every day. And uh, today, we, you know, we always tell you bloody Angola is going to be different. And, and this is uh, different. You would think, oh, hard ass like me, oh, lock everybody up. I don't believe in that. I believe if you're innocent, you're innocent. And if you're guilty, lock them up. If you're guilty, you go, Throw it go pay deep. hell of jail. <laughs> hell of jail, that's right. And and uh, and so we did want to preface this episode with some of these guys uh, were exonerated from DNA. Some of them, it, would have been, it was other reasons, and we're going to get into that. Yeah. But the intriguing thing about today's episode is many of these guys that we're going to tell you about were actually serving uh, in death row. Right. They, right. They've been and, sentenced to death. So today we're going to be talking about people or convicts who were exonerated and yes. released from bloody Angola. Yes. Right. Yeah. So uh, we want to kind of start this off. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the innocence project. Right. So the innocence project was founded in 1992 by Barry Sheck. Y'all yep. familiar with him through OJ? Familiar with him. Yeah. And uh, it, it was basically formed to assist incarcerated individuals who could be proven innocent, primarily through DNA testing, although sometimes they find so many holes in a case, right, they'll t- right. they'll pick up a case uh, where there's so many problems that they they take that case on and, and look for exonerations in those cases. Um, the average prison sentence before they'll take on a case is 14 years. Uh, before their exoneration or release, and so it's a, it's a process even with those guys. Right. But we're going to get them to take anybody, right? Yep. So uh, one of the ones I can tell you about, if ready to get started, I'm ready. Is John Thompson, y'all? Um, John Thompson was from Orleans Parish, and I'll just read you some of the facts of the case, some of the highlights, and and what ultimately ended up happening. So. Shortly after midnight on December 6, 1984, Raymond Luza was shot several times in the course of an armed robbery just around the corner from his New Orleans, Louisiana apartment. When the cops arrived, they found Luisa laying on the ground, but he was still conscious. He told them he was robbed and shot by an African-American male and then took him to the hospital and he died. Yeah. On December 8, responding to a tip, the police arrested two men in connection with the crime. John Thompson and Kevin Freeman. Photos of the two men were published in the New Orleans Times, the Picking Times Picking, and soon afterwards, police received a call from a family that had been carjacked several months earlier, claiming that Thompson looked like the person who had robbed them. Thompson was charged with the murder. Meanwhile, Freeman agreed to testify against Thompson in the murder trial and in return prosecutors charged him only with being an accessory to murder uh, right uh, so he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison i'm talking about freeman y'all so the world famous new orleans district attorney harry connick senior not junior that's his son the singer and actor decided to try thompson for the carjacking case first knowing that a conviction could be used against him in the murder trial Based primarily on the eyewitness testimony of the three carjacking victims, all of whom were minors, Thompson was convicted on April 4th of 1985 and sentenced to 49 years in prison. Wow. That is for the carjacking. Yeah. And y'all always told you that eyewitness testimony is the worst testimony there is. But doesn't mean it's not true. 
At his murder trial held shortly thereafter, the prosecution demonstrated that Thompson had at one time been in possession of both the murder weapon and a ring taken from Louise's finger. Thompson decided not to testify in his own defense because if he did, his felony carjacking charge would have been admissible to the jury. As a result, he was unable to tell the jury that Freeman had sold him the murder weapon and the ring. Freeman, the main witness for the prosecution, claimed that he and Thompson had robbed Louisa together and that Thompson had shot him. This testimony was contradicted by the statements of eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen only one man running from the scene of the crime. Richard Perkins, who had originally called in the tip implicating Thompson and Freeman, also testified to the prosecution, claimed that he heard Thompson make the incriminating remarks. Thompson was found guilty and sentenced to death on May 8, 1985. Mm. So fast forward a whole bunch of years, y'all, and events took a dramatic turn in April 1999. 30 days before scheduled execution, an investigator discovered that there was a blood stain from the robber on the clothing of one of the carjacking victims and that this evidence had never been disclosed to the defense. It's Brady, y'all. If they had it, they got to give it up. The prosecutor had ordered testing to determine the blood type of the stain. And in fact, they had rushed the test. When the blood type was determined, I guess this was before DNA, blood type was determined and was different from Thompson's. They concealed it. Defense attorneys then obtained an affidavit from Michael Realman, a former district attorney who said that five years earlier in 1994, um, Jerry Deegan, one of Thompson's prosecutors, admitted on his deathbed that the blood evidence was intentionally suppressed and he left a report about it on the desk of James Williams, the lead prosecutor. Williams denied ever seeing the report. And defense attorneys also learned that Perkins, the witness who testified that Thompson admitted the murder, had received $15,000 from the Louisa family as a reward. When this evidence was presented to the trial judge, he granted a stay of execution and dismissed Thompson's carjacking conviction. But he denied Thompson's motion for a new trial in the Louisa murder. In 2001, however, he reduced Thompson's death sentence to life in prison without parole. Wow. Pretty crazy, right? Very crazy. But in, in July of 2002, Louisiana uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal overturned Thompson's murder conviction and remanded the case for retrial, ruling that false robbery conviction obtained by deliberate government misconduct have deprived Thompson of his constitutional right to testify on, on his own behalf at the murder trial. And y'all, I'm not against that. I mean, uh, um, given the new trial, if, if it was messed up, right? So at the second trial, Thompson was able to explain that he purchased the murder weapon from Freeman. And the defense called several new witnesses who claimed to have seen only one man fleeing the scene of the murder. They said the man did not look like Thompson, but did resemble Freeman, who in the meantime had been killed in a shootout with a security guard. Mm. On May 8, 2003, a jury acquitted Thompson after deliberating for 35 minutes, and he was released from prison the same day. Y'all, 35 minutes is for conviction? That's outstanding, but for for exoneration, I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and normally it takes hours. They and hours were pretty hours. They convinced. Make, yeah, they want they, they want to make sure. So in 2008, Thompson won a 14 million dollar civil suit against the district attorney's office. That judgment was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court in March of 2011 on the grounds that the misconduct in the case was not the result 
of a deliberate policy or systemic indifference by the New Orleans DA's office, uh, he got $330,000 in state compensation. Hmm. But you know what? He That's a long time to be on death row, and you didn't do it. So, um, And he's, he's he a was, good example of someone that it wasn't necessarily DNA evidence right, that exonerated right, right. him, but it was and the I, facts I of the case. I've heard of this case before, and I, actually I think it's pretty well documented. Um, but Thank you. But you know what's – What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. But you know what the sad thing is? In 2017, Thompson died of a heart attack at age 55. Uh, yeah, man. And and you're you know you nailed it when when you're talking about those blood stains. And back when he was convicted, it was 85. Well, yeah, yeah. So there, there was, was no, no DNA. DNA. I think it was like 92 when the first time it was used successfully. And even then. Most prosecutors thought it was junk science. So it had to be used over and over again successfully and tested and tested and tested and then uh, and agree to what it is today. That's right. But let me tell you about a, uh, another case out of death row in Angola that was actually. Place you don't want to go. No, you don't want to go there. But was actually uh, reversed over DNA. And that right. is the case of Ryan Matthews. So. Yep. Matthews was 16 years old, y'all, at the time he was sentenced or arrested, rather, and was 17 when he was sentenced to death for shooting of Tommy Van Hoos, who was a convenience store owner in Bridge City, Louisiana. You familiar with Bridge City? That's where the uh, juvenile prison used to be. There you go. So in April of 1997... A man wearing a ski mask entered the store and demanded money. When Van Hughes refused, the perpetrator shot him four times and fled, taking off his mask and diving into the passenger seat of a window of an awaiting car. Several eyewitnesses viewed the perpetrator's flight. One woman was in her car and watched the perpetrator run from the store, fire shots into her direction, and leap in the car. So these guys were hightailing it, right? They, They done shot somebody four times. When she was later showed a photographic array, which is like a six-pack, y'all, right. uh, she tentatively identified Matthews as the assailant. She tentatively identified Matthews as the assailant. By the time of the trial, she was sure that Matthews was the gunman. Two other witnesses in the same car watched as the perpetrator shed his mask, gloves, and shirt as he fled. The driver claimed to have seen the perpetrator's face in his rearview mirror while he was being shot at and tried trying to block the escape. The witness and his passenger were brought to a show up hours later. The driver identified Matthews. His passenger was unable to make an identification. Mm-hmm. And, and as our previous case, right. identifications uh, not very reliable. Now, Ryan Matthews and Travis Hayes, both 17 at the time, were stopped several hours after the crime because of the car they were riding in resembled the description of the getaway car. They were arrested, and Hayes was then questioned for over six hours. Yeah. His initial statements to investigators, uh, Hayes claimed that he and Matthews were not in the area where the crime occurred. Hayes eventually confessed that he was in the he was the driver of the getaway car. Huh. He stated that Matthews went into the store, shots went off, and Matthews ran out and got into the car. Both boys were described as borderline intellectually disabled. In 1999, based mainly on identifications, Matthews was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. There you go. Hayes was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. 
Matthews had maintained his innocence since the arrest. The defense presented evidence that forensic testing of the mask excluded both Matthews and Hayes. A defense expert also testified the car the two boys were driving. The reason they were stopped could not have been a getaway car because the passenger side window that Matthews allegedly jumped through was inoperable uh. and could not be rolled down. So that's... that's- I mean, how do you get around that? I I don't know, but uh, they did. Um, Other witnesses to the the crime described the shooter as being much shorter than Matthews as well, which that's not necessarily that reliable. I mean, height's hard to determine. You can put four people in the room and four people may, you know, get the different height and weight or whatever wrong. But, uh, you know, if it's a correct identification, Basically, they you can bring them back two weeks later, and they can still pick out the facial features. That's right. That's right. So you y'all ready to to hear how how uh, this person got exonerated? Yes. Well, DNA testing in another murder case proved to be the keys to proving Matthews' innocence. Another murder occurring shortly after Van Hughes' death in the same area. A local resident named Rondell Love was arrested. He pled guilty. And Love bragged to other inmates that he also killed Van Hughes. And that happened, y'all. You'd be surprised. And street cred. So this got back to Matthews' attorneys, I'm sure through Matthews. And they began to investigate Love. DNA test results from the second murder were compared to the results from the Matthews conviction, indicating that Love had been wearing the mask that was left behind in the Van Hughes murder. Testing on the mask, gloves, and shirt had already excluded Matthews and Hayes, but they became conclusive after Love's profile was included. There you go. So somehow, in the in, even though they were excluded from all that DNA in the first trial, there was no one to necessarily pin it on. Right, so right. it got pinned on them. Well, still going you on can't get around stuff. it when right. someone else's profile shows right. up. So uh, over a year after he, this information was discovered, he was granted a new trial. He wasn't released. Right. He was just granted a new trial. Uh, but he did eventually get released the new trial. He was found not guilty. Right. Uh, and became the 14th death row inmate in the United States proven innocent by post-conviction DNA testing. That's crazy. After two more years of legal battles, you'd yeah. think he'd get yeah. out right yeah. away. they got to make sure, right? Yeah, so Travis Hayes was released in December 2006 and exonerated in January of 2007. Uh, you may think that someone in this position, you know, they must have got a ton of money, right? Uh, uh, I mean, you were sentenced to death, for Christ's sake. Right. Uh, he received 252000 in state compensation and another 133000 from the federal uh, the federal courts. And to tell you how, how resilient this cat is, in 2019, Matthews graduated from Texas University with his bachelor's degree. Cool. And I get chills from that. Yeah, cool. Because, man, that's – look. They said they, they were going to kill him. They were going to kill and, him. And, and so I, I get it. Um, not to get into death penalty arguments or whatever, but I'm telling you this. I'm glad he, uh, Glenn Ford, got a, off a of death row, and I'm glad he got off a of death row. Um, not Glenn Ford. I'm sorry. Boom. Boom. I'm glad John Thompson got off of death row, and I'm glad he got off a of death row. Uh, but I promise you, there's some monsters out there that deserve to be there. Oh, there's no doubt about deserve it. deserve to breathe. Well, it's but, like you always say, just make sure you get it right. You know, yep, that's yeah, the important that's thing. If you're going to do it, do it right. That's Especially right. when you're talking about taking somebody's life, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, 
that's why they have the, the appeals process the last 20 plus years before they kill them. Um, let's talk about Glenn Ford. All right. All right. So Glenn Ford from up in Caddo, that's where Hugo Holland. That's right. Caddo. And um, he was another one, y'all, sentenced to death. Okay. Uh, he was convicted in 1984. But let me tell you about it. On November 5th, 1983, uh, a 56-year-old Isidore Roseman, a juror and watchmaker, was found shot to death in a shop in Shreveport, Louisiana. His pockets were pulled and items were missing from the store. One of the first people to be questioned was 34-year-old Glenn Ford, an affable man who did yard work for Roseman. Ford denied being involved in the crime, though he admitted he had been near the store at some point earlier in the day and witnesses told police they saw him near the store. Well, in February 1984, items from Roseman's store turned up in a pawn shop, and a handwriting analyst said that Ford had signed the pawn slips. Mabella Brown told police that her boyfriend, Jake Robinson, Jake's brother Henry, and Ford were at her house on the day of the crime and left together after Ford asked if they were going. Brown said Ford was carrying a brown paper bag, when the men returned later that day, Ford was carrying a different bag and had a gun in his waistband. Jake Robinson also was carrying a gun. Brown said Jake showed her a bag containing watches and rings. Mm. Kind of suspicious, right? Ford, along with Jake and Henry Robertson, and a fourth man, George Starks, were charged with capital murder and conspiracy to commit armed robbery in 84. In November of 1984, Ford went to trial, and Ford was represented by two appointed defense attorneys, neither of whom had ever handled a criminal trial and one whom had never handled a criminal case of any sort. That's, mm. that's kind of bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not you, that's when, not the attorneys yeah, I want to yeah, represent. Yeah, right? When <laughs> you're on trial for your life, right? Oh, my God. Uh, if it, yeah, if it, I mean, if you're in Livingston Parish, you want Jace Brock handling your business, right? Yeah. On the and this side. is a death penalty and trial. If, if you uh, anywhere else over on that side of Louisiana, you want Thomas Davenport out of Alexandria to handle it because that's what they do. Right? Yeah. These guys had never even handled a case like this. It's crazy. So, uh, Anyway, the um, Brown fell apart on the witness stand and said on cross-examination that detectives had fabricated her responses and she had lied in her testimony. She said she had been shot in the head earlier in her life and that the bullet was never removed, causing difficulty with thinking and hearing. Mm-hmm. Right? Makes Several sense. witnesses testified that they saw Ford near the victim's store on the day of the shooting, but no one testified that they saw the crime. A gunshot residue expert testified for the prosecution that after Ford had voluntarily come in for questioning, he recovered gunshot residue on Ford's hands. Okay. A fingerprint analyst said he lifted a single fingerprint from a paper bag found at the scene. He said that the print contained a whorl-type pattern and that Ford had such a pattern when, while the Robinson brothers did not. Mm. Dr. George McCormick Cato Parish Coroner testified that he had analyzed the scene of the crime, including the position of Roseman's body and a duffel bag found next to the body with a bullet hole in it. McCormick said he concluded that the victim was shot by someone who held the gun in his left hand. Ford is left-handed and the Robinsons are right-handed. Mm-hmm. 
not looking good for Ford. No, not at all. McCormick also said the Roseman had been dead for as long as two hours by the time the body was discovered, a time when witnesses said they saw Ford near the store. Ford testified on his own behalf, which most of them don't, right? Right. Um, But he testified and denied his involvement in the crime. He admitted selling items to the pawn shop, but said he got them from the Robinson brothers. On December 5th, 1984, the jury convicted Ford of capital murder and conspiracy to commit armed robbery. Following the jury's recommendation, Ford was sentenced to death on February 26, 1985. After Ford was convicted and sentenced, the prosecution dismissed the charges against the Robinson's brothers and Starks. Hmm. And and let me just say this. Okay, the inexperience of the lawyers that you mentioned— is glaring when they allow their they allowed him to testify right, in right, his own defense right, right. Uh, in in a death penalty case. And, and Holy now, crap! Yeah, I don't know when they changed the law, but I know uh, I know Jace, uh, Jasper Brock. And yeah, let me see. Jasper Harris Brock would say he ain't talking. And I know <laughs> Thomas Davenport. They're certified in death penalty cases. You have to actually get certified to defend somebody in death, death penalty cases now. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. And, probably and, this and, case and, caused and it. Probably, well, probably one of them, right? <laughs> I mean, they should have known this shit was going to get done the way That's it crazy. is. That's crazy. Uh, it's still, I believe everybody has a right to a fair trial. So Ford goes to death row, right? And his appeals were unsuccessful until 2000 when the Louisiana Supreme Court ordered a hearing on post-conviction petition for a new trial filed by the Capital Post-Conviction Project of Louisiana. At the hearing in 2004, a defense expert testified that McCormick's attempt to reconstruct the crime had no connection to known facts and was speculation at best. And I agree with that. They're talking about the um, the uh, corner, right? Yep. So, I mean— you can't tell somebody's left-handed from a bullet hole in a duffel bag. Right. right? Uh, but anyway, the another defense expert said that the gunshot residue evidence was meaningless because it was gathered more than a day after the crime and that Ford could have easily picked up the residue merely by being in a police station where such residue is extremely common. Another defense expert said that the prosecution's fingerprint expert misidentified the fingerprint on the paper bag and it could have been left by the Robinson brothers. All very, very true. Um, Ford's lawyers at the trial testified that they were very inexperienced in criminal cases. <laughs> even I, even I, the I lawyers. Jasper and Thomas Davenport, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and had no training in capital defense, right? So, I mean, you know what? Well, if I was for it, I'd be raising hell. I'm like, what? The, you got me two guys that are yeah. right behind the ears. Give me a pro. Crazy, like, man. Jasper Rocker, Thomas Davenport, right? Um, I mean, they even, they're even saying that, that he gets you know, he deserves. Yeah, they go on the stand right. and say, yeah, we, we're so pretty experienced. One of the lawyers who specialize in oil and gas law had never tried a case to a jury, either civil or criminal. That's, that's like... My brothers, one's a tax That's lawyer and one's a, a maritime lawyer. They've never been inside a courtroom, right? Uh, and the extent of his prior criminal work was handling two guilty pleas. Well, that's easy <laughs> enough. The other lawyer who was out of law school less than two years and was working at an insurance firm handling personal injury cases. Both said they were unaware they could seek court funding for defense experts, shocker, and didn't hire any because they couldn't afford to pay out of their own pockets. Both were unaware of how to subpoena witnesses from out of state. And so Ford's family members who lived in California did not testify for Ford at the guilt or punishment phase of the trial. 
The defense presented numerous police reports that had never been disclosed to the defense, right? The, the report showed that Shreveport police had received two tips from informants implicating only Jake and Henry Robinson in the robbery and murder. Other police reports showed that some detectives had falsely testified at Ford's trial about statements Ford made during his interrogation. Testimony that the prosecution should have realized was false, the defense claimed. Moreover, other police reports that were withheld from the defense contained conflicting statements by Marvella Brown and by the witnesses who said that they saw Ford near the store at the time of the crime. The reports could have been used to impeach the witness testimony at trial. Wow. Well, but still, the post-conviction motion was denied. <laughs> In 2012, the Caddo Parish District Attorney's Office began reinvestigating the case, and in 2013, disclosed that an informant told authorities that Jake Robinson had admitted shooting Roseman. Oh, wow. So in March 2014, the the honorable and right thing to do, in March 2014, the prosecution filed a motion to vacate Ford's conviction and death sentence in light of the newly discovered evidence from the informant. On March 11, 2014, a judge vacated Ford's convictions, and the prosecution dismissed their charges, and Ford was then released. How about that? Even after all that, they fought him so hard in the, in, um, the second trial, et cetera, then they came forward. I, you know what? I, I don't know if Hugo Holland was still the uh, prosecutor up there at the end. I'll have to look it up. Maybe I'll ask him. He just messaged me last night. The, um, but that, that's an honorable thing to do. And, but... In March 2015, a Caddo Parish district judge denied Ford's request for state compens- compensation. The <laughs> judge ruled that Ford knew the robbery was going to happen, did not try to stop it, that he attempted to destroy evidence by selling items taken robbery, and that he tried to find buyers for the murder weapon. And unfortunately, in June of 2015, Ford died of lung cancer. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a good kind of segue for a second, Woody, just to talk about, look, not all the guys we're going to tell you about today are, um, you know, citizens of the year. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. some of them definitely committed some crimes or right. may have withheld some right, evidence, right, like in this right. case. But there's a that's a long jump from being sentenced to death for a right. murder right. you didn't I commit. I mean, look, we have a legal process for a reason. And, then, like, a lot of my cases are bad cases uh, uh, where the witnesses are, like, really – shady people or you know they're criminals themselves and well guess what a lot of these crimes don't want to happen with a bunch of choir boys yeah you know what i mean that's you right got running with choir boys when you're going to murder somebody and, and steal the jury yeah uh, but the you know you're gonna put it to death having two be- inexperienced attorneys and all the other stuff and the guy saying about you know the, whatever that's not enough to kill somebody that's right yeah. so um we're going to give you a two for one right here. And why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seen more health issues with the dog's joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. 
She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Now, my dog, Phoebe, is the queen of our house, and I can tell you that her health is extremely important to us. She is a part of our family. I watched the video, y'all, and I was amazed by the things I didn't know that could impact your dog's health. This 20-minute video is packed full of tips that I've already started with my dog, Phoebe. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin and coat. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash bloodyangola and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash bloodyangola. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And you're not going to believe this. Let me tell you real quick. Yeah. And and I I know I keep talking about science. Um, I don't know if it was this is we'll have to get him on Uh, this part. He's a part of this innocence project, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's the same one. Barry Shank, it's another one. And he got a guy. Off a of death row. Wow. Uh, He'd be uh, great to sit down and talk yeah, to. He got a guy off a of death row, and he's told me about the case, and and I was like, well, holy shit. But I think it was out of Missouri. So yeah. he's, he's in all federal courts and everywhere else. And, right. Uh, Tom is yes, Thomas Davenport. But he, I mean, he believes in, in you know, if everybody deserves a criminal defense, and I, I agree with that. And then now, if you're a cop and you got it right, you got him right. Don't send them to death. Don't send them away for life on some bullshit. That's right. That's right. And and uh, so we're going to tell you about Michael Graham and Albert Burrell. Now, both of these yeah. gentlemen were sentenced to death yeah. back in 1986. I was 16 years old. That was a long time ago. Right. Long time ago. So on the night of August 31st, 1986, 65-year-old William Delton Frost and his 60-year-old wife, Callie, were fatally shot in their two-bedroom home in Downsville, Louisiana, which is kind of like a, it's a, uh, almost like a plantation area of Louisiana, very rural. Uh, The front door had been smashed in and police believed the motive was robbery because Frost didn't trust banks and was believed to keep cash in a suitcase in his home. A lot of older people. Especially in those times, they didn't they didn't put money in the bank. Right, they put money in everywhere but the bank. Uh, the shots appeared to have been fired through a window, and their bodies were discovered a couple of days later. Now, six weeks after the murders in October of 1986, Janet Burrell told police that she had met with her ex husband, 
on the night of the crime and that he had $2,700 and $100 bills and blood on his boots. Mm-mm. That don't look good. She said he admitted firing the shots, and she saw Frost's wallet on the front seat of his car. Wow. That's dead rights, huh? Yeah, so Burrell was arrested within the hour. Now, not long after, Kenneth St. Clair, another witness, told police he had come to Louisiana with Michael Graham to find construction work. St. Clair told police that on the night of the crime, Graham and Burrell left the trailer where Graham was living. A, uh, near St. Clair and about 8.30 p.m. returned. Graham had blood on him, St. Clair said. Huh. So now you've got another person seeing that blood. Right. At the time, Graham was in the Union Parish Jail on forgery charges for stealing a checkbook uh, from a woman who hired him in St. Clair to do some work and then cashing about $300 worth of checks. Yeah, like you said, everybody in these stories isn't angels. Yeah, yeah. So on October of 1986, Graham and Burrell were each indicted on two counts of murder. Two days later, Graham's cellmate, Olin Brantley, told authorities that Graham had admitted he and Burrell committed the crime. Yeah. Kind of deal did he get? That's it. And that Burrell had fired the fatal shot. So Graham goes on trial in 1987 in the Union Parish Courthouse. The state's key witnesses were Janet Burrell, who we told you about, and Brantley, we also told you about, right? So they got him dead to rights. Although police reports said that Frost's wallet was recovered in his home. Mm. A deputy testified that he believed Burrell had returned to the Frost home and put the wallet back because he suspected his wife had seen it the night they okay, met. So that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you just throw it the fuck out of the way? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a stretch yeah. and a half because right going there. Back to the murder scene to put the wallet back. Yeah. I think my wife might have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Now you're Whatever. dumping it in the in the ditch or right. something. You're not putting it back. Yeah. Another witness, 14-year-old Amy O'Peel, who had spent the night of the crime with the St. Clair family, testified that she saw Graham Burrell sitting on the couch of the trailer with a suitcase and stacks of money. Mm. So Graham was convicted on March 22nd of 1987 and sentenced to death. Burrell went on trial in August of 87, and he was also convicted and sentenced to death on pretty much the same evidence as Graham. Five months after Burrell was convicted, Janet Burrell, who by then was remarried to Burrell's brother, James, Uh, I told you this was a good one, recanted her testimony, Mm -hmm. Woody Everton. She said she lied because she wanted to get custody of their child, which had been awarded to Albert Burrell prior to the murders. Uh, That's called motive to lie. Absolutely. So the Louisiana Supreme Court, they Man, grant. That's cold-hearted. Yeah, that's cold. Yeah, I mean, sentence. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look. Like, yeah. That's, but you that's know as cold as you but can wait, get. Wait, how shitty of a mom does she have to be for the dad to get custody in the state of Louisiana? I'm that's telling a you. rare deal. Well, somewhere along the line, her conscience weighed on her, and she admitted she lied. And the Louisiana Supreme Court granted Albert Burrell a hearing. A hearing. I hear that. But at the hearing, Janet Burrell Changed her testimony back. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's figuring it out. Uh-oh, I might get in trouble yeah. for this. To her original story. And the motion for a new trial was denied, and eventually the conviction and death sentence got upheld by the Louisiana State Supreme Court. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Graham, you know, don't forget about him. Mm-hmm. His case was also sent back for a hearing in motion for a new trial because of all this going on. Right. And his lawyers, they continued to get extension after extension, and they began to cover new evidence. Uh, 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 by 19, 
95, Janet Burrell shows up again. She uh, says, I'm going to recant my testimony nah, again. She's, she's un, unreliable now. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, the crazy thing was the execution date was in August of 96. She recants it in 1995. And, you know, the lawyers, uh, the closer it gets to that execution date, they're, right, you know, they're 24 hours a day trying to get you a stay. And 17 days away from his death, Burrell's lawyer obtains a stay. In 1998, uh, Amy O'Peel shows up again and recants her testimony, claiming she was pressured to lie and that St. Clair, it was St. Clair she saw with blood on his clothes and counting money. It wasn't Burrell. Okay, so Graham, he finally gets a hearing in 2000 where lawyers present all these recanted statements, right. as well as evidence that prosecutors failed to turn over exculpatory, right. exculpatory evidence right. Right. and impeachment evidence, uh, including that Brantley had cut a deal with prosecutors on a pending charge and then he was taking medication to control his mood swings. Uh, so Brantley had a little, a little yeah. bit of an anger problem, probably. Yeah. Um, and on March of 4th of 2000, Graham was granted a new trial after the third judicial district judge, Cynthia Woodard, ruled that prosecutors had mis- misled the ju- jury yeah. and failed to turn over exculpatory evidence. What, do, what is exculpatory evidence? Anything that could uh, possibly make the jury find them not guilty. Yeah. So on December 28th of 2000, they dismissed charges against Graham and he was released from prison. This is a man that was 17 days from getting the needle. Yes. On January 2nd, you may wonder, what about Burrell? January 2nd of 2001, charges against Burrell were dismissed, and he was released. Now, in 2016, a state appeals court upheld a lower court ruling denying Graham and Burrell compensation from the state of Louisiana. Burrell and Graham filed a federal lawsuit, but a jury ruled against them. And they never... Solve the crime now, huh? So it's, Never. So it's a cold case. Cold case. And and here's the interesting thing, and you may wonder, you may wonder why they're denying this money. Um, no, it's hard. It's almost impossible to get a, a nickel for being wrongfully convicted. Exactly. And when, especially when you don't have DNA evidence right, to back right, it up, because right, right, right. there's no, there, there, basically that was so many inaccurate statements but it right. didn't necessarily mean you didn't do it it just means yeah. the people that said yeah. you did well, it were and, lying and a lot of times if they get they'll have to find like gross negligence they prove that the da actually did what they said said that he did or whatever something. that's it but hey and really you know people don't really care about uh people that are exonerated basically yeah paid. yeah that was two for one yeah. right you know, a lot of states you. have a set amount that and if you get exonerated it's just you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, Which is crazy. Hey, there's no amount of money worth being on death row. Let me much, tell you. In Angola, much less on death row. Yeah. Uh, uh, the guy that was the singer that we did the episode yeah, on. Yeah. Archie. How, how can you give that guy enough money? You can't. And he was exonerated on DNA Absolutely. evidence. He did not you, do it. You cannot give him enough. You can't give him enough. And, so and, so why are you putting a ceiling on it? Why are you um, – yeah. because every situation is different. Someone like that, I, I mean, you can't give him enough. But God enough. dang, you need to give him millions. They, they, should, they should never have to work or do anything. Period. So, y'all, I'm going to tell you another one. And this one is a rape and a murder. And it's the case of Damon Thibodeau, which is a good, strong – Louisiana, right? and another 
Louisiana man that was sentenced to death row at Bloody Angola. Yeah. So on July 19th, 1996, at around 5.15 p.m., 14-year-old Crystal Champagne left her apartment in Marrero, Louisiana, to walk to a nearby supermarket. When she didn't return home as expected, her mother went looking for her. At around 6.45 p.m., her father and 21-year-old step-cousin Damon Thibodeau also went out to look for her, and did, as did several neighbors. The search continued until the following afternoon when friends of the family heard that a girl who looked like Crystal had been seen walking on the levee. Y'all, that's if you're not from South Louisiana, levees or, or man-made walls that hold back the rivers or the bayous or whatever. Um, said Crystal had been seen walking on the levee the previous evening. Not long after, Champagne's body was found near the levee. She was partially naked and had been strangled with a wire. Before the girl's body was found, JPSO uh, investigators began interviewing people who had been with Champagne before she disappeared. An officer was interviewing Thibodeau, who had been at the Champagne, at Champagne's home when Crystal left for the store. When he was informed that her body had been found, um, a homicide detective then took over the question. Right? Thibodeau initially said he knew nothing about the murder. He agreed to a polygraph test, which police said indicated deception regarding the girl's death. Uh-oh. And, uh, and you yeah. being a former polygrapher. Yeah, still a polygrapher, actually. Yeah. That, uh, um, I, oh, man, it's just so hard. I mean, basically, at that point, the polygraph is an interrogation tool. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to clear somebody who's accused of murder if you're not good as fuck like me. You know, <laughs> no, seriously, you got to set the questions where the questions that they lie to you. Yet they their response has to be stronger than did you rape and murder this girl? Yeah. Well, fuck you. You're in the hot seat, right? You know, yeah. you're looking at the death penalty. It's hard to do. So they failed him. Whoever it was, I don't know who it was. Wow. The, um, <laughs> so they failed him on a polygraph. Which uh, let me tell you, the polygraph is a long process, but it's basically made to break people down if they're guilty, and it's you know five six hours. Um, but I always said a good homicide interrogation doesn't even begin until after five or six hours, right? That's when you really start to get in that ass. So eventually, after nine hours of questioning, Thibodeau said that he had raped and murdered Crystal. He was arrested and charged with both crimes. And after he was allowed to eat and rest, Thibodeau quickly recanted his confession, but was (laughs) ignored. At Thibodeau's 1997 trial, the prosecution built his case around his confession to the rape and murder. And Dr. Frazier McKenzie of the JPSO coroner's office who performed an autopsy on Crystal, testified the girl had been strangled to death and her had injuries to her right eye and forehead consistent with getting hit by a bat or a rock. He noted bruises on the girl's buttocks, which said he indicated a struggle. He estimated Crystal had been dead about 24 hours before she was found. Separately, Dr. Lamar Lee, a professor of entomology at Louisiana State University, Testified about the insect samples taken from Crystal's body. He said the flies will lay eggs on a carcass within a couple of hours after death, but will not lay eggs after dark. He said the eggs were laid before nightfall. That's true. Uh, it is. It is. That's All interesting as hell. Came out of the um, body farm originally out of Tennessee, but the I didn't have used maggots and, and the generation of flies, and they could tell you how long a body's been down, like 
Damn. almost two within 15 minutes. On July 1996, and calculated the age of the fly larva or the maggots at between 24 and uh, 28 hours old. So they eat until they turn into fly, die, and have more babies in the cycle. But th- there was no physical evidence linking Thibodeau to the crime, and though Crystal was found undressed, they found no semen on her body and no other physical evidence that she had been raped. A police officer testified the semen could have been eaten by the maggots. Mm, I guess. A, a week after the crime, oh detectives God. questioned two women they found walking on the levee. Both said they saw a man pacing and acting nervously on the evening of the murder. Both women picked a photo of Thibodeau from a photographic lineup and both identified him at the trial. Thibodeau's attorney argued that detectives coerced confession it suggested facts of the crime to him during their interrogation. On October 3rd, 97, a jury convicted Thibodeau of first-degree murder and rape. He was sentenced to death. So oh, my God. Another one of our boys going up to death row. Death right? row. So fast forward 10 more years, and in 2007, the JPSO District Attorney's Office agreed to reinvestigate the case with the Innocence Project and other lawyers who volunteered to work on the case. Now, DNA testing, as well as other forensic testing, was performed, and investigators interviewed numerous witnesses. The investigation revealed that the woman who identified Thibodeau as the man they had seen pacing near the crime scene had seen Thibodeau's photo in the news media before police showed them the photo lineup. Moreover, the date of the sighting turned out to be the date after the body was found when Thibodeau was Mm. already locked up. That could be a problem. Right. Extensive DNA. Well, you know what? You got to give props to JPSO DA's office for even trying to uh, reopen and look at this. Right. Most of them are like, fuck you. I've yeah. got a conviction. Yeah, you did it. And he's on death right? right? Yeah. But extensive DNA testing on items recovered from the scene of the crime failed to detect any trace of biological material connecting Thibodeau to the murder. Tests also showed that despite Thibodeau's confession to rape, Crystal had not been sexually assaulted. And DNA testing on the cord used a string of crystal identified a male DNA profile that did not belong to Thibodeau. Uh-oh. Right? Well, that's not, not totally, doesn't totally excuse him. I mean, it could have been anything, right? Uh, that somebody else could have held the cord and Thibodeau could have uh, been wearing gloves when he held it. We don't know. Yeah. But the reinvestigation established firmly that Thibodeau's confession was false. He claimed to have raped Champagne when, in fact, no rape occurred. He said he strangled her with a gray speaker wire he took from his car, when, in fact, she was strangled with a red cord that had been tied to a tree near the crime scene. Mm. The prosecution consulted an expert in false confessions who concluded that the confession was the result of a police pressure, exhaustion, psychological vulnerability, and fear of the death penalty. Wow! Yeah, I mean it can happen, y'all. I, I hope every day that I didn't, I didn't uh, get the juice from somebody like on the wrong level, right? And I don't think that I did. But anyway, on September 29, two thousand twelve, he was released from death row. Thibodeau later filed a federal civil rights lawsuit that was put on hold. And in January twenty seventeen, unlike most of our guys, he died mm-hmm. in August of. Um, 2021. Wow. But you know, I, I, I've, you know, 
I know false confessions do happen. It's a uh, it's a real deal. Yeah, you'll com- you'll confess to anything if you're tired enough. I mean, well, I mean, I mean you've been you had your ass stomped enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, eight nine hours not eating. I mean, say you're gonna you're gonna get the needle. Da da da. You're right. So yeah. right, it might have been a. Um, you know, help me help you. You tell us what happened. And, you know, tell me that you cooperated. But the fact that they he confesses and then they give him some food and he's like, "No, oh, yeah, God, yeah." I'm All right, I'm, we're gonna give y'all one more today, uh, and we're gonna tell you about a guy that definitely did not do it was exonerated right. by DNA evidence, and that is Mr. Ricky Johnson. And I saved this one for last today because. He was in prison a long time for a rape he didn't commit. Matter of wow. fact, he was in prison twenty five years. Yeah, that would suck. For, yeah, uh, yeah. You start you one day in prison for something you didn't do. Right. It sucks, right? Imagine twenty five years. Uh, so let me tell you about the crime. In early uh, in the early morning hours of July twelfth, nineteen eighty two, a twenty two year old woman awoke in her northwest Louisiana home to find a man holding a gun to her head. The man raped the woman twice, stayed at her house for four hours. He told he told her, her name his name was Marcus Johnson, and he mentioned several details. Uh, he claimed they were about his life. He claimed to be looking for an ex-girlfriend of his from Manny, Louisiana. He said he was on probation. He was from Leesville, Louisiana, and he even said he had relatives in the town of Natchitoches and Monroe. Okay. So the weird thing is he rapes his chick twice and then he starts telling her his life story. It's almost like he felt like, you know, now we have yeah, a connection. Yeah, I got this special nut dumb connection. Yeah, right. yeah. So what's the what do you think the victim did? Pillow well, talk. Yeah, pillow talk. She reports the rape the next morning, and uh at which point she told police her attacker was an African American man. He was between five six and five eight, and he weighed about 140 pounds. Uh, he had facial hair and a scarf tied around his head. So a detective uh, from the Sabine Parish Sheriff's Department contacted the Leesville Sheriff's Department to ask if they had a man named Marcus Johnson on file. There was no record of Marcus Johnson, but Leesville officers did tell detectives about Ricky Johnson. They said, well, we got another Johnson here. His name's Ricky. He's African-American. Yeah, yeah, and he was on probation he, for a traffic violation, a misdemeanor. So Ricky matched some of the details that the uh, the lady provided of the perpetrator. He was from Leesville. He did have a child with a woman in Manny. And he had relatives in Natchitoches and Monroe. So mm-hmm. he becomes a suspect, right? Nothing wrong with that. Police showed the victim a six-pack. Uh, but it was actually only three pictures in this one, so we're right. going to call it a three-pack. Three-pack. Yeah. It had Johnson's photo, which was at the center. I don't know how you get away with that. And that picture was eight years old, and it was in the center. Right. Yeah, that's important. Right. Mentally, you go to the center picture first, right. Right? right? The victim told police that she had ample time to see the perpetrator's face, and she identified Johnson as a perpetrator, even though he had prominent gold tooth, which was never part of her description of the attacker. So if a, if a guy rapes you uh, or a girl rapes you and they have a gold tooth, right. you're well, probably going to mention you, they had a gold you tooth. Got, you got you mentioned facial hair and everything else. And yeah. The gold tooth would stand out. 
So two days later, what do you think they do? They go arrest uh, Ricky Johnson, oh, Ricky. and they don't even investigate any other suspects at this time. They think they got their man, right? Johnson asserts uh, his innocence. He says, I didn't do any of this crap. Six days later, they conduct an in-person lineup with five individuals. Again, Johnson, they put in the center. Yeah. Uh, and again, the victim identifies him as the assailant. The lineup was not presented at John Johnson's trial because it was ruled inadmissible since Johnson did not have an attorney present at the lineup. Huh. I mean, okay. it happens. Right. Doesn't mean he didn't do it. So tests at the Shreveport Crime Lab determined that evidence collected from the victim at the hospital included sperm and serological testing that showed Johnson and 35% of the African-American population could have been the contributor. Huh. I mean that's right. that so that's basically no evidence. Uh, too many people. Yeah, too many. Too many. Too many people are last. Thirty-five percent of the entire population. African American. Yeah. Johnson was charged with aggravated sexual assault and tried before a jury in Sabine Parish, Louisiana. The victim identified him at trial, saying she was positive. Game over. Positive that was him, and there was no question in her mind. She said the apartment was dark until about fifteen minutes before he left. Prosecutors presented the victim's photo ID of Johnson and the serological evidence that his blood type matched the blood type of the perpetrator as yeah, determined. So, so yep. serological is on, back then only they didn't have DNA. Yeah. They, they give you blood types, basically. That's it. So long story short, he gets convicted by the jury and he's sentenced to life without parole. Bloody Angola. Uh, bloody Angola, baby. That's As where you're rapist. going. Yeah. So Johnson contacts the Innocence Project at the suggestion of a guy named Calvin Willis, who was also a fellow inmate at Louisiana State Penitentiary. Williams uh, Willis was exonerated in 2003 after the Innocence Project secured DNA testing yeah. that proved his innocence. So he basically called his boy and said, if you really didn't right. do this, I, I got some people you need to talk to. Now, in late 2007, that DNA testing was performed on the sperm from the perpetrator of the crime. Remember, we said right. they had sperm. Definitely had and the results proved, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Johnson could not have been the attacker. Wow. This is the first DNA exoneration using the new technology with DNA at this time called Mini-STR, which allows labs to accurately test degraded or extremely small samples. Wow. First time. Lucky so, dude, yeah. yeah. So in January 2008, you know, they do what anybody would do. They would they took that DNA profile and now they have a database, mm -hmm. right? In That's 2008. Right. And in Uh-oh. Somebody else. They got huh? a hit. Yeah. They got a hit Woody yeah. Everton and John McNeil, who was mm -hmm. already in prison serving a life sentence for rape right. committed in 1983 yeah. in the same apartment complex, incidentally, really? as the crime for which Johnson really? was convicted. How in the hell do you not investigate that? It's crazy, ain't it? Yeah. So he's already in prison for that rape committed in the same uh, complex. And uh, so basically they offer their apologies. And after 25 years in prison for a rape he didn't commit, Ricky Johnson was released and exonerated in 2008 after 25 years in prison. Years. The state of Louisiana later awarded him 245000 in compensation. That ain't even close to what he right. needed. Hey, did, um, did they ever uh – did Ricky Johnson go beat that other guy's ass? <laughs> That's like, a good question. I, I couldn't I, find I, the answer I, to that. I'm sure if I he wanted to. You could. He got some inmate justice. Yeah, like, 
bitch, you knew I've been here all this time for this. And you know, they all know what they're down for. Oh, and yeah. You get your David Constantine being in there lying, like saying my wife uh, you know, put me up, but not on rape charges. No In the same doubt. apartment complex? No doubt. And, Bro, and that I'm, is crazy. It's freaking nuts. And, and you know, you would think that guy's already serving another life sentence. Why not just come clean and say, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Because he's a rapist. I raped that girl. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly that's even, why. Even convicts don't like rapists. That's right, especially kid rapers and all that. That's right. So, so long story short, he got two hundred forty-five thousand dollars from the state of Louisiana. Um, a federal wrongful conviction lawsuit was settled confidentially in two thousand eleven. So he did get some money federally. Doesn't say how much, but yeah, uh, couldn't have been enough. Look, we hope y'all enjoyed these, and um, we got to do more of these. You know? Yeah, oh yeah, uh, these cases that you find are, you know, criminal minds always fascinating to me. But this shit is, yeah, uh, it's, love it, love and, it. And so. so hey, we're all about the um, Gerald Bordelon getting executed for you know uh, raping and killing oh, yeah. little Courtney LeBlanc. Piece but we're shit. all about Almost every one of these, except for uh, Ricky Johnson, was on death row. Yeah, something. There's been actually, for those of you out there that are playing trivia games, there's been 11 people released from Angola alone uh, from death row based off of either DNA evidence or strong evidence to force an exoneration. Yeah, and I get that, why people are against this. Oh, you kill one wrong, it's you know, it's too many, shut it down. Uh, you haven't sat across yeah. the table or look, looked at the dead bodies and shit that I've looked at and looked in the face of evil. But right. I get, hey, but I'm a champion and would go on, as you know, Jim, after my law enforcement career, I, I went on and defended people uh, that were innocent. Yeah. I believe we're innocent, so it is what it is. We're not totally one-sided, but, you know, hell or jail or freedom. That's it. That's it. Another so, great episode. Yeah, we loved it. Thank you, patrons. Couldn't do it without yes, you. Yes. If you're not a patron member, go join Patreon. We may Say do it. some of these just for patron right, members. Right. And any y'all the, the patron future. get, you know, commercial free uh early release and episodes and locked up episodes, which we probably have more locked up for bloody angle than I have locked up for real life real crime. It's yeah. a bunch of them. Yeah. About all different kinds of stories. So y'all go check it out. Uh you can go to patron.com and type in Bloody Angola. Yep. Slash Bloody Angola podcast to pull right. you right to it. Uh, we appreciate it. We love each and every one of you. And until next time, I'm Woody Everson. And I'm Jim Chapman, your host of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Peace. I walk a straight line, shackled and chained. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hillstring Gang, Wrangle the Three.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.